This is the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast for October 5th, 2021. Welcome to the Everybody's Talking at Once podcast, where we talk about everything by talking about video games. My name is Drew Messenger Michaels, and as always, I'm really glad you're here. Today, I am talking to Aaron Sanfilippo of FlipFly Games. We talk about pretty much the entire FlipFly catalog, released, unreleased, possibly never to be released, all of the above, but we mostly talk about Whisker Squadron. To call Whisker Squadron procedural Star Fox is a bit of an oversimplification, uh, for reasons you'll understand once you've heard the interview, but that descriptor does get at the, this is such a good idea, how has no one done it yet-ness of the project. So, I think we should just dive right in. Enjoy. good edm but like that that's not ideal <laughs> right <laughs> for for yeah, totally. uh, from a podcasting perspective totally. um awesome well thank you a ton for being here i really really appreciate it um welcome yeah glad to be here we uh we'll start somewhere simple and then we'll branch out from there so like for people who have not heard the good word what is whisker squadron Sure. Whisker Squadron is, let's see, what's the, the fastest way to describe it? It's a, <laughs> it's a procedural um, uh, campaign-based corridor shooter, um, kind of in the vein of games like Star Fox and other rail shooters. And it uses a lot of the aesthetic sensibilities and mechanics from a previous game of ours called Race the Sun. It's interesting, too, because like I, I, I liked Race the Sun a lot. And... Uh, I think I wasn't alone in that, but I was thinking back and like in my head, Star Fox looms large, you know, it's like one of those canonical games everyone's aware of. And even if it wasn't like their game, they have, they have opinions and familiarity, but it's actually like a relatively small niche, like it, in the the realm of space shooters, like that corridor based kind of arcadey thing. Like yeah. there are fewer examples than I expected when I, when I really sat down to think about it to the point that even though race, the sun has no shooting it's still kind of recognizably star foxy in in some way less so than whisker squadron obviously but sure is that a niche that you that you treasure or is it something you've just sort of like begun exploring and uh and found that it makes sense to continue yeah you know star fox for me was a very influential game you know it was something i think i played when did it come out 1992 or something like that it was, i think um, in the in the, so, in the West, somewhere in there yeah. so yeah i probably played it in the first year it came out and you know, when I was a kid, we didn't own a Super Nintendo, um, but I, uh, we used to rent them like for, for birthdays from the uh, video stores and stuff. So this is for I, sure um, a generational thing. Yeah. That you used yeah, to be able to totally. rent consoles. I for sure rent did this consoles too. consoles from, from, I mean, the video stores are a generational thing too. Well, yeah, sure. We'd, fair point. You go yeah, to the yeah. video store and you'd rent a Super Nintendo and you'd get Star Fox and Super Mario World, you know. You'd go to the local mind. blacksmith and they would rent you out, <laughs> exactly. rent you out a console. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I believe you said that would be like for like your birthday or one of your siblings' birthdays. So like you, uh, you're from a relatively large family, so so five ish times a year you'd end up with an SNES in the house. Exactly. Yep. Yep. Something. Something. Probably three three times a year. You know, not all of us were super into it, but it was like, yeah, for me and a couple of brothers, that was something we really looked forward to. So, um, so yeah, Star Fox was super influential, and I have this. I don't know if you if you look back at it. It doesn't hold up super well, really. It, I mean, it ran at like 10 frames a second and stuff, but I have <laughs> it's this. It's a rough thing. ride. It's a rough I ride. This, I actually replayed yeah. it before we talked and it's like, it, it's still really good, but it's definitely yeah. rough. Totally. I have this theory though, that whatever games came out when we were like 12 or 13 or right in that age are always just like the best and you can never match them no matter how good <laughs> modern games are. You know, it was like, oh, totally. For some people, it's 
you know, if you ask them what's your favorite Zelda game, it's always the one that came out when they were around 12 or 13. Completely. It it puts you in a real difficult position as somebody making sort of a, not a spiritual successor precisely, but a game that riffs on a game of that era. Because, you know, people want it to be precisely that, except they don't, they want it to be the way they remember it. So like, they want you to bottle their childhood, which is an impossible ask, right? Yeah, it totally is. Totally is. And it's, um, yeah, it's tough because it's like, it's, um, you know, one, we're not trying to make a clone. Totally. It's like we're, we're, we're not shying away from trying new things. And, you know, like procedural generation was not a thing in the original game. It was like you played that level one and this enemy always flies in from this exact point and you can memorize everything. And, you know, there's no randomness whatsoever as far as I could remember. Um, where we're really leaning into that modern, you know, dynamic gameplay. Um, and that has all kinds of implications for, for design that if like, if you're looking for a Star Fox clone, you're probably going to be disappointed, you know? Um, but also, you know, when, when the game runs at 10 frames per second, that has all kinds of implications for <laughs> yeah, the amount yeah. of action on the screen and like how the shooting works and, you know, what's, what's fun and not. And, you know, Whisker Squadron is designed to run at 60 frames a second and you're moving through the world a lot faster and the draw distance is bigger. So like just everything about that balance is going to be, is going to be different, you know? Um, yeah, the build of Whisker Squadron that I played, it's funny because it is, it is much, much slower, the flying than race the sun, but it is so much faster than old school Star Fox. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <clears throat> it's yeah, interesting totally. too, because you said you point out that those games didn't really have procedural generation, putting aside the, the sheer madness of Star Fox two, which maybe we can talk about at some point, mm-hmm. there wasn't, you know, procedural generation in Star Fox one or Star Fox 64, which I think, you know, are more like each other and more like what I've seen of Whisker Squadron than, than Star Fox two, which again, off to the side, yeah. yep. there wasn't procedural generation, but there was this idea of like routing and non-linearity right that you would play Mm -hmm. different sequences of events different planets different routes through the galaxy or the or the solar system or whatever each time so like to me that is kind of like the germ of an idea that they're you know that like like it's spiritually similar (laughs) to procedural generation in some way yeah totally totally um yeah yeah, and i think that added to the replay value for sure and we're just trying to kind of take that to the next level you know it's like okay not only are there different routes to the world, but the, the worlds themselves are going to feel kind of unique every time. And there might be events that happen one out of every time, 10 times you play, you know, and then between the worlds, there's all these um, dynamic events that will kind of add a, a tactical layer to the, to the whole thing too. The events are really cool. Yeah, they're like um, kind of FTL-like, I suppose. I think you've said that's an influence where, you know, you have kind of the, the map like you would have in Star Fox 1 or Star Fox 64, mm-hmm. but some of the kind of nodes on the map are, you know, are shops or they're these events that happen where, you know, like your 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 wingman or your crewmate or whatever challenges you to race through an asteroid field or something, right? Stuff happens that isn't necessarily a level, right? Yeah, totally, totally. So those are going to be kind of a key part of, I I would imagine, like a key part of the chaos and also a key part of the thoughtful strategy of what a run looks like, yeah? Totally, yep. Yeah, and FDL was definitely a big inspiration. Uh, Slay the Spire as well. You know, I think Mm. there's just something, and I guess just roguelike games in general or just procedurally generated games in general, there's just something really exciting about not knowing what's around the corner, you know? Um, Sometimes it's something really cool. Sometimes you kind of get, screwed over by the game and that's that can be fun and a learning experience too so yeah it's really about that kind of really compelling and most gambling feel of playing another run you know <laughs> the yeah get let that interesting balance between gambling and mastery right because like this is supposed to be the whole deal with for example spelunky is you're mastering the whole system you can't memorize a level in the way that you would with the more arcadey structure of old school Star Fox, right you right. have to you have to be ready for anything but it is possible to be ready for anything at least hypothetically is that is that sort of the idea yeah yep <clears throat> totally and it's you know you'll um you'll learn you know kind of the the, the patterns of these events and stuff over time, you know, and FTL was the same. It's like, okay, there's the, the planet with the spiders that are infesting it and you got to decide whether to go help or not. And you learn over time, like, okay, there's a certain risk that I'm going to lose a crew member if I go in, and help, but then I might get this other reward too. So, you know, it's not a solvable thing, but you kind of learn to balance the odds and, you know. You learn how, um, yeah, how much the risk is and whether the reward is worth it to you. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
That's interesting. I mean, to me, Whisker Squadron, you know, based on what I've heard you say from the design, and to be clear, I've played like an early build, but I know there's a lot that's going to be in the game that isn't currently in the game. It doesn't mm-hmm. go past Act 1, for example, currently. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, from what I know, it sits in a very interesting place in like discussions about roguelikes. We had uh, Santiago Zapata on not too long ago who, you know, ran Rogue Basin, uh, is making uh, Nova Mundi right now, and, you know, is, is basically has an encyclopedic knowledge of roguelikes and pointed out that when people talk about, you know, pure roguelikes or whatever, they talk about the Berlin interpretation and all of that. But some of what modern roguelike likers i suppose really enjoy or value you know these are things that are not accounted for in this kind of purist definition the big thing being meta progression mm-hmm. right spelunky is obviously not you know it's it's not it's not a pure roguelike in the sense of you know having like you know ascii based characters or whatever yeah. but it is pure in the sense that you start from the beginning every time and i think mm-hmm. that's maybe something that that you know santiago was saying that's something that like really hardcore roguelike players value way more than turn-based or a top-down perspective like meta progression just kills it for some people right and from what i understand this was a long-winded way of saying from what i understand whisker squadron is like very light on slash completely eschewing the kind of like you know you get a currency you can spend to get permanent upgrades like all that meta progression stuff is minimized or even absent is that is that right at least so far uh so far you know we're we're kind of um We've got some plans for something like a currency or an experience-based thing, but it's really more about like aesthetic, uh, aesthetic upgrades and stuff. So like, you know, Spelunky did have things you could unlock, but it was mostly like new playable characters that didn't actually affect the gameplay. Totally cosmetic, yeah. Um, I don't know that we're going to have totally cosmetic. Like we we might, uh, for instance, have a couple playable characters that you'll unlock, and they'll have a different a different weapon. But it's not a it's not an upgrade in the sense that like, okay, you unlock this character and now the game is that much easier. It's just, uh, <laughs> right, right. Okay, it's a new way to engage with the game. You know, and we might, we might have things that are like um, certain randomized weapons that will become available after you beat the game once or something like that, just so that we can kind of like expand the dynamic possibilities without overwhelming you in the first you know, 30 yeah, minutes yeah. of the game. Race the Sun had that even a little bit, right? As you do stuff, the ga- the new elements of the game get introduced. Like in a, in a roguelike context, I think of it maybe as Binding of Isaac style, right? Like where just the pool of items gets bigger and that's the thing you're unlocking. It doesn't necessarily make the game easier, as you say. It just, it's like once you've mastered the basics, it throws in more potential wrinkles, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And it's almost like an alternative to a lengthy tutorial, I guess, or something like that, mm, you know? To- totally, um, yeah. Yeah, Race the Sun had you know, we had objectives and levels. So it was like you level up and you totally did get, you know, more powerful things. So you were totally getting uh, upgraded in that sense. But Race of Sun wasn't a roguelike either. It was more like um, just an arcade game, I guess, you know. Sure, um, sure. So, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting dilemma. You know, on one hand, it's like there's that purism feeling of like I want to upgrade my skills and then I'm, I'm, I'm getting further and it's always a challenge and, you know, I dislike the idea that the longer you play, the, the easier the game makes it for you because there's kind of like opposing interests there between, <laughs> sure. you know, keeping the, that optimal difficulty high, you know, but also um, letting you feel like you're unlocking stuff. And then on the other hand, it's like I think there's a there is a certain amount of um, replay value that that comes with those systems, you know, where it's like whether it's making the game easier or not there's just something compelling about that checklist of stuff you can get. And, you know, I want that item for my shit. And, you know, if, our brains are dumb and they like unlocking stuff. There's no getting. Yeah. Around. Yeah. And it's a, it's a weird sort of thing where, you know, if people are looking at the value of a game in terms of like, what do I think this is actually worth spending money on or how much money is it worth? I think they do think about like, how, how long can I, f- play this game before it's finished you know and it's <laughs> yeah, it's, it's yeah. a weird sort of value proposition when you're looking at a roguelike that you could technically beat the first time you play if you were really good you know right um, you won't as a practical matter but you could and that is yeah. in fact a big part of the appeal totally totally that's interesting so like the unlocking characters thing somebody i don't know if you played a uh, black future 88 but somebody else we had on recently was don bellinger who made that and 
that's a game where you unlock characters and and it, like you say they're not strictly more powerful than the characters you start with they're just harder to use right yeah. like they have yeah. abilities that you would immediately destroy yourself with if you were playing for the first time so you start with the sort of like basic well-balanced you know mario and mario kart kind of character and then you mm-hmm. unlock the nichier stuff later is that is mm-hmm. that kind of what you're thinking from from a certain perspective i think so yeah yeah you know each character has a special weapon that's unique to them um and we haven't really done this yet, but I think they're going to have different attributes that they kind of add to the team. So for instance, having one character on your team might make items and shops 5% cheaper or something like that, you know? So there is kind of like some tactical advantage to having a character on your team. Um, and we haven't figured out exactly what the mechanism will be for unlocking them. It'll probably be achieving some kind of difficult thing, you know, in your run. So it's like, you know, <laughs> get a perfect got... score on a level or beat the game for the first time. Yeah. Whatever, something, yeah. something along those lines. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So like, it's interesting because if you're not doing the meta progression thing, let, let's maybe like set the table, right? Because the, what's great about a pure roguelike is that it's just you in the game, right? What's bad about that is if that happens to be above your skill level, then you will, you will never beat it. And there's kind of nothing to be done about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is obviously a big problem with Spelunky and Spelunky 2, or, or, or is it a problem? Or is it exactly with the game's intent? It is both, right? Um, mm-hmm. With meta progression, like you say, the game gets easier over time. So it sort of rewards you for having played it with it becoming more possible for you to beat it. The downside being, like you say, there's a, there's a sacrifice of purity, right? Um, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And then you, you think about something like Hades, right? Which kind of has everything possible to to mitigate, you know, the, the you know, it's, it's not a pure roguelike, right? Like you are grinding and becoming more powerful, yeah. but you're also setting challenges for yourself to get the stuff that makes you more powerful. So it kind of encourages a push and pull. Right. But then it also has that like God mode thing you can put on top where if you are having trouble, there is just sort of like a switch you can flip <laughs> to make it more doable for yourself. Um, yeah, I know we're leaning, you, yeah, 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 we're leaning way into that too. You know, there's two things that we're doing. One is we're adding, I think we're going to call them just accessibility options and they'll be like in the options screen. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just a bunch of toggles you can turn on or off. Um, so we're going to make it possible to make the game basically as easy as you want it to be. Um, so that might include running the game at 50 percent, uh, 50% speed or turning on God mode or, making it so you have twice as much health or, you know, we kind of want it to be a customizable, ex- customizable experience for anybody, you know? And so if you've got a three-year-old kid who can't really, really play the game, but they just love watching their ship crash through everything, like you'd be able to turn on God mode and they'll have a blast with it, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing we're going to do as part of the actual campaign settings. So every time you launch a new campaign, we have this whole list of mods and those kind of go in the other direction. So it's like, um, you know, uh, you start with half the health uh, as you, as you typically would, or if you want to make it really hard, maybe you only have one health. So one hit will kill you uh, if you want to make it extreme. And then we're going to add mods that just kind of like modify the experience in other ways. So for instance, um, we've got these goofy things that, that like add gravity to your lasers. So you kind of have to aim, aim with that in mind. And, you know, we're going to have other things that kind of change up the visuals in different ways. So we might add like a, I don't know, a classic mode or something like that. We haven't, haven't totally nailed it down, but basically we want it to be a really customizable experience. Um, and then we kind of take collections of those mods and package them up into like a traditional difficulty mode. And so if all you want to do is just say, okay, I'm playing a normal, you know, hard or, you know, nightmare or something like that. You can just kind of change that thing and it'll find that collection of, of settings that's kind of tuned for that. Um, but then you can go in and, and tinker with it as much as you want beyond that too. Uh, so yeah, it's, you know, on one hand, that's a little bit scary because it kind of means we need to make it fun no matter what your settings are. Um, and that could be a little bit challenging for us, but also, you know, going back to the idea of replay value, if people go in and just crank everything down to the easiest setting and play through the game and, and beat it on their first playthrough, are we enabling people to just um, burn through the game? And then will they feel like 
uh, like they didn't get their money's worth or there should be more or something like that, you know? So that's an interesting thing. Have you gotten that kind of feedback? Cause like there, there's usually, there's a certain kind of capital G gamer who gets mad at the idea of somebody doing that, not them, but somebody, right. Somebody who just like turns everything down to easy and burns through it and then doesn't get the full experience or whatever. But I've, I've never personally met anyone who actually does that. In my experience, people who turn all that stuff down, it's because, you know, due to, you know, just lack of experience with games or physical ability or cognitive ability or whatever, that yeah. turned down version is actually still challenging for them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Everybody has different, you know, brain processing speed and physical abilities. And, you know, I think for me, it's like, I like a game that's challenging. Um, I think when it, when I get annoyed with a game is when it feels like it's being condescending to me. So for instance, mm. you know, when I played like um, uh, Zelda Skyward Sword, I think it was called. The one, um, uh, the one, yeah, the, the one that just got remade recently. Yeah, you know, like the original Wii U version, at least. Your little helper, I don't remember what their name was. I believe that's Fee, the, yeah, the little AI that lives in your sword. It was like more than any other Zelda game, it was like they just kind of detected that you were taking a little bit too long to solve some puzzle. And then this character will jump out and tell you exactly what to do yeah. without you asking for that hint. And it was like, dude, this is like, this is why I play this game is so I can figure out these things. Why are you ruining the experience for me? You know? Let me so, be confused for three seconds. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that, you know, that's, that's something I want to avoid. It's like, okay, we're not going to dynamically adjust the difficulty or suggest something else. It's like, you know, we've got those, You've got that difficulty setting right in the menu there. If you're having a hard time and you want to go down to the easiest mode, like you can do that, but we're not going to like push it on you, you know? No, that's um, legitimate because I mean, like something as I've gotten older and this, you know, like <laughs> hate me, hate me on Twitter if you must, dear listener. But as I've gotten older, I have shamelessly turned stuff down to easy when games start being obnoxious, particularly in endgame stuff. I really love the Yakuza games, but some of those like endgame, highly grindy activities, of course, I'm going to turn things down to easy. I don't yeah. need the battles to be twice as long, right? Right, right? But when a game says it looks like you're having trouble, would you like to turn down the difficulty? I don't think I've said yes once because mm -hmm. I feel defiant <laughs> that point yeah, totally. and i think i think that's true for a lot of people right and in, in that sense those kinds of uh like you say those auto suggestions or whatever can be quite counterproductive mm -hmm. yeah, totally, yeah totally yeah yeah you don't want to, yeah exactly like the condescending thing is exactly what you want to avoid and you know as as for like the the the, the small minority of gamers who just get mad that an option exists in a game um <laughs> right. like I, I just don't pay attention to those people you know it's like right get over yourself dude it's it's not everybody is at the same skill level and wants the same thing as you out of a game. And it's not going to hurt you to have that option there, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, at the risk of psychoanalyzing at a distance or whatever, I think it's just that for some people, the idea of beating a hard game is like, you know, a badge of honor. That's how you get inducted into the, the 39th chamber or whatever. Totally. And they're mad yeah. at the idea that somebody might sneak in without going through the ritual. Mm -hmm. And it's, I just, I just don't know that we need to have a ton of patience for that attitude. Cause like, yeah. who cares? And, you know, they can still beat the game on the hardest difficulty and, you know, have that bragging rights. It's not like we're going to let anybody fake that, <laughs> you know, it's like if you turn on, you know, for instance, like if you go into the accessibility and turn on God mode, you're not going to like be able to submit that score to a leaderboard or something. Where totally. You, you totally. No. And like Twitch exists. And if you're really that lead a gamer, you can, you can show yourself being lead. Like it's, there's yep. nothing. Yeah. Yeah. It, totally. Yeah, exactly. Adding more options for more people doesn't take anything away from other people. I think that's, that's, I think most people who play games, which is maybe a, a, a somewhat not distinct overlapping, but you know, but different category from gamers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think most, you know, most people who enjoy games are, are becoming more aware of that. I I think there's just this this interesting reflexive conversation around difficulty particularly in the space of roguelikes right because like i think being hard is something that people who want some kind of roguelike do value and again like what is hard or what is challenging for for a given person is going to vary wildly but i do think most people who want to play a roguelike do want to be challenged you know like they expect yeah. to die a lot initially and like that is supposed to be part of the experience right right yeah mm -hmm. Is that something you value? I mean, like your, you know, your previous games, like you say, have not really been roguelikes. Is was the procedural generation thing more what you were here for, and is the goal to make something more accessible, or or is that I don't want to call it a brick wall, but that, that initial daunting challenge that you then overcome is that is that part of the appeal? Uh, you know, I think so, and I guess that's um, that's like an identity thing that we're 
still working through a little bit with the game is mm-hmm. like, you know, if you play the game and you don't make it to that fine, you know, even the act one boss for the first five times you play in a day, is that okay or not? You know, um, like if you were playing, you know, to reference Star Fox and you got really good at the game, you kind of want to be able to beat it most of the time you play at a certain point, you know. Um, you expect to is, you know, like you, yeah. yeah, by the time you, by, by your, your fifth run, <laughs> you expect the run to be successful, you know? So, so it's always something that we're like, you know, we, we got these procedural generated bosses in the game, which we can talk about more later. And like some of the combinations of them are just like brutally difficult. And I kind of think that's cool. You know, it's like, um, I, I want that uncertainty coming in about whether it's going to be like more difficult or less difficult or, you know, totally unexpected so um but the temptation there is like okay that was really frustrating and too hard so how can we like tune the algorithm so it doesn't make it you know the combination of elements that makes it that difficult again you know um yeah 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 is there some value you assign to how difficult a given boss configuration is we should talk more about the well i mean actually maybe before i can ask this question let me ask you to explain very briefly what you mean when you say procedural bosses. Well, in fact, first, I'll explain it the way I understand it, and then you can tell me all the ways that I'm wrong or oversimplifying. Sure, sure. So my understanding is we're not just talking about a pool of bosses like a lot of roguelikes have from which one is randomly selected at various points. We're talking about the bosses themselves being procedurally assembled from pre-existing parts. So you've got yeah. kind of like a like a you know a, a basic shape that moves around, but then the weapons that it uses and a appendages that that have those weapons attached to them get sort of snapped on in a procedural fashion so you are actually fighting like different bosses with different phases at different times is that is that a fair description yeah i think so you know it's um and it's still a system that's kind of in development to be honest but the way it works is that there's kind of this um core i guess you could call it like an airframe or you know the frame of the the basic structure of the thing and it has mm-hmm. its movements movement patterns that it'll do and you can kind of learn those they're they're somewhat randomized but you can learn kind of how it'll move around in the world and then it has all these different attachments that are that are kind of procedural and the attachments have their own little sub attachments and the attachments can attack in different ways and kind of add different behaviors to the thing so the combination of these different parts will make it feel somewhat unique every time so um it's not procedural to the extent that, you know, like a, a Minecraft world is procedural. Like we're literally creating this thing out of these atoms, you know, <laughs> using some, you know, sophisticated thing. It's one it's, block it's, of lava and two blocks of water and then yeah. there's a city in the center. No, no, no. But yeah. it's, but so it's yeah, yeah. There's recognizable pieces and there's recognize, recognizable patterns. I think it, it just like is important for learning. Um, but it's also like a lot more dynamic than a typical boss fight would be. Right. Yeah, that's that's so interesting, right? Um, creating, you know, more possibilities because obviously, like bosses tend to be because they tend to be more handcrafted, tend to be one of the things you learn in a roguelike over time, right? Like mm-hmm. even if the level can still surprise you, you might be surprised by which boss you're fighting, but you've pretty much got your techniques down for the boss. Maybe there are variations, right? But you you yeah. understand the basics, right? Totally. That's it's interesting to like to to tip this particular thing and and probably the low poly style is uniquely suited for that where you can snap these parts together and have it not look like nonsense, right? If you had things mm-hmm. with faces, it would be a lot harder mm-hmm. uh, or, or, you know, normal limbs, even you might end up with some kind of, you know, Elden ring style things with a million arms or whatever, uh, yeah. which wouldn't be terrible, but isn't the, isn't the tone you're going for, right? The low poly thing makes it possible, but I imagine it's tough to introduce a sufficient amount of variety without running into what I, what I believe you've referred to and what is generally known in procedural generation as the two bowls of oatmeal problem, right? Yeah. Like if you serve your, if you serve two bowls of oatmeal, the contents of each bowl is unique, but they're not unique in a way that's interesting or even necessarily exactly. discernible. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Totally. Yep. Yeah. The, I think I, I think I learned it as the 10,000 bowls of oatmeal problem where it's like, 10, you know, you can say there's 10,000 combinations <laughs> or a million combinations, but yeah, they're, they're indistinguishable. So, right. um, yeah, that's an interesting problem. And I think, so you're trying to distill, you're, you're, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I was going to say, you're trying to distill down what makes a boss interesting and then like make those the vectors on which things get snapped together or, or procedurally generated. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, if you think about your favorite boss battles and games, they typically have 
stages and they get more difficult as time goes on and the boss has some high amount of health and you know kind of movement patterns that you can learn to recognize so it's you know the, the two objectives in a boss fight are like survive and, and take down their health you know um and then you know kind of advance through these stages is typically a typically an element there so um trying to think about how to fit that structure but do it in, in unexpected ways um and then I guess the other kind of related element is like, so you've got these two, you know, or, or some amount of like random pool of mechanics and attacks and weapons that this boss can have. How do those combine with each other in interesting ways and then kind of like interact with your arsenal of weapons and, you know, attachments and and your crew in interesting ways too. And yeah, I think, yeah. I kind of think that's how we avoid this like, 10,000 bowls of oatmeal problem, you know, totally. it's like, you know, okay, this time it did something that's totally different than a different mechanic. And, you know, your weapon also interplays with that in this way, or, you know, you've got the, you know, speed attribute is way cranked up from your upgrades. And so you can kind of like dodge these, you know, blockers that it throws out at you this way. And so elements of luck there, but also kind of like learning what's possible over time. Totally. And it occurs to me as you're talking that the basic template of Star Fox is uniquely well-suited to this as well, the phase thing, because it tends to be like the, the phases such as they are in those fights tend to be like, you know, the, the the boss has these two giant arms shooting lasers at you, you blow up the arms and then it's the core of the thing and how would the thing behave without its big laser arms, right? Like it's yeah. it's it's grokkable in a way that a lot of multi-phase boss fights aren't necessarily, right? Like, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> the boss is on fire now or now it summons ghosts or whatever, like those things, you know, not to say that's bad design, just that there's no way you could predict that. Whereas this thing has big arms. If I blow them up, then what? Like there's right. a, there's a, a, a native piece of storytelling there that no matter how many variations there, there are at least potentially makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. It's, um, it's, yeah, there's a lot of interesting challenges there. You know, it's, uh, you know, one, it's like, you know, if you've got parts that you can blow off, how do we, how do we make those stages more intense or more interesting, you know? Um, and yeah. also how do you avoid the situation where it's like, okay, you've got this really dangerous, you know, gun that you gave it. And now you give the player the ability to blow that thing off. And now, you know, how does it, how does it kind of make up for that in other ways? Or, you know, did you just make the boss kind of boring by doing that? You know, <laughs> what is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's a, but yeah. yeah, as a practical matter in Star Fox often, uh, you know, it would be that that first phase was super dangerous. And once you blew off the big gun, the second phase was kind of a gimme, right? Like you'd earned it. Yeah. So you just like yeah. wail on the thing after that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Totally. But so like, has there been some aspect of these bosses that you wanted to be procedural and have had to back off on? Or has the sky so far kind of been the limit? It's just a question of tuning and making it interesting. Um, let's see, you know, I spent a, a couple months just kind of like pr prototyping the whole system last year. And to be honest, at first, we didn't know if it was going to work at all. Um, and I guess at this point, it's like, okay, it's all, it's, it's kind of coming together and it's pretty fun. It's, it's not quite where I want it to be yet. Um, I'm working with my designer, Sean, and, you know, uh, kind of strategizing about how to take that to the next level. And we just haven't had time to, to get back to it, you know, for a while, but, um, so far, there hasn't been anything that I've tried that's just like that just totally didn't work at all. Um, it's just uh, kind of kind of a matter of finding those constraints. You know what? Uh, for instance, like you kind of need to know, um, like you can't make a really complicated, sophisticated environment for this boss to be in and still have a high amount of like, randomized movement and you know, mm, the, the levels themselves are going to be relatively fixed. Yeah. Yeah. At least that's kind of what we're working, working with right now. You know, not that we couldn't develop like much more sophisticated AI that knew how to navigate, sure. you know, a complex environment like that. But it's um, so far the easiest thing has just been like, just keep the corridor clear and add some interesting background objects. And then, the interesting obstacles and environmental stuff comes from the boss itself. Totally. And to be clear, we're saying the, the, the level or the area or the corridor in which you fight the boss, the level to get there is still highly procedurally generated, snapped together from yeah. chunks basically, right? Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And your chunks are pretty brief, right? They're, they're like a couple seconds of gameplay. So you have a relatively high degree of, of, you know, differentiation run to run. Is that, is that correct? 
Uh, yeah. So, you know, we, we hand design these little chunks. Like you said, it's, you know, probably three or four seconds or so per chunk. And then we can sequence those together. So, you know, one sequence might be five or six chunks. So, you know, you'll see that, you'll see that whole sequence play out. And then within those chunks, there's a pretty high degree of randomization that happens too. So you won't see the same enemies every time. And there's different objects that will appear and in, mm-hmm. in some runs and not others. Um, and then we're also working on like additional layers on top of that that will apply to the whole level. So for instance, like there might be a meteor shower that happens on one run. Mm. Kind of the equi- equivalent of like a level feeling in Spelunky, if you remember that, you know, like, okay, um, the lights are out this time in, in this particular level, or this level is twice as big as it usually is for some reason, you know? Or, you know, <laughs> or yeah, snake, or like the graveyard spawns bit. in the middle, so there are zombies or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. So. Yeah. You know, we don't know how far we're going to take that exactly, but we do want to mix things up so that it's not, you know, just the same every time. Um, I love that. That's super yeah. cool. That's super mm-hmm. cool. Um, going back to the chunks thing for just a second. Um, one more episode I'll point people toward was when we had uh, Chris King on recently, who, who is making 30XX and launched that with as a core feature, like a, and a you know, a, a level editor or like a mm-hmm. chunk editor. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea being that people make like the individual chunks, which then get mixed in. So you just immediately have a massive amount more content. I know you've talked about putting out a level editor. I don't know if that's, if that's currently on the menu, but I guess two part question. Are you thinking that may still happen at some point down the road? Obviously not asking you for a commitment written in blood, but I'm just curious. And the thing that I couldn't help but be extra curious about is like, would that include then a boss part editor, right? Like, would the ultimate goal be to have people add everything, you know, at a granular level in that way? Or would it be a more traditional sort of like level editor experience? Right. Yeah. You, you know, the interesting thing there is, um, you know, when we started making this game, it was basically built on the technology that we used for Race the Sun as a starting point. And then we just started modifying from there. And Race the Sun did ship with a level editor. Um and so the easiest way for us to get started with this game when we were prototyping it was just, just to build everything with that. And mm. so at the moment, like everything that's in the game is, uh, including the bosses and all the levels and all the enemies are all built using this, this in-game level design tool. Um, and it's not in the build that, that players can play right now just because it's kind of gone back and forth and whether we want, we want to ship that again. But yeah, in theory, like, you could go in and design your own procedurally generated bosses, you know, either using like our pieces as a starting point or, you know, just kind of like looking at what we're doing and replicating it and changing it and stuff. So um, that's a huge leg up to have not just a tool, but a tool that is, that is already, you know, more or less built to face the public. Like that's, that's really cool. Yeah. And it's, um, you know, know, we're we're using the unity game engine and at the moment it's like, we're using this, this in-game tool within the game in unity. So it's like you play the game and then you go to the level editor menu and then, you know, build it. So like if we ever do make that available to the public, it's literally the same tools that we use to build the game. You know, we have the added ability to like add new materials and code for things that we're trying to do new, but you know, those things would kind of trickle down to end users if we did ship it. It's, um, you know, the challenges there are like, you know, one, we're thinking about this in terms of being a console game, and it's just a lot harder to do a level editor on consoles for a variety totally, of reasons. Totally, totally. Um, with Race of Sun, you know, when we launched in 2013, you know, late 2013, and then we added the level editor, I think, as a public thing with, you know, Steam Workshop support in early 2014. Um, Steam Workshop was still fairly new at that point, and, you know, Val was featuring it a lot, and, you know, we, we kind of took advantage of that at the time. And I think we had like a level design contest at one point, which was um, moderately successful. You know, we got some good engagement from the community, but we also learned a lot about just like what it takes to support that kind of feature. Um, you know, level editors, you know, level content creators will always find ways to break your tools. And if you patch the game, it could, you know, break mods and then people get upset over mods not working and they come to us and report bugs. It's like, I played this mod and it's not working. Like, you guys need to fix this. It's like, sorry, I can't always like, you know, you know, you look at games like Factory and they're, they're really good at like testing community mods when they're patching the game so that it works and, you know, letting people know when things are changing and making it easy for people to support their game that way. Um, so there's definitely like some community management and tech support overhead. And in addition to the, the development time it takes just to make those tools like 
friendly for the general public, you know? Totally. Um, but that said, it's like, this game is a lot more sophisticated than Race of Sun, and the level editor is a lot more powerful and interesting than Race of Sun was. So, you know, the idea that people could just go and make their their own entire campaign and their own, you know, their own bosses, their own enemies, you know, really interesting level mechanics, like, that is a really exciting possibility. So it is it is definitely on our radar. It's just um, we're kind of like balancing those priorities of like, okay, do we do we want to make that a, a ship feature or do we like see how the game does first and then add that? You know, I guess there's good arguments for both, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's definitely, definitely on our mind. <laughs> no, for sure. And I would imagine that, you know, what the community wants would determine whether your focus is you know, maybe the answer is both, right? But whether your focus is more on letting people author their own campaigns versus having them, you know, create small discrete chunks that then get randomly folded into the core experience or, or whatever, right? Like all right. of the above is possible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, because like the problem is not totally solvable. I find it really interesting, the community management aspect of, of being in touch with people who make mods, because, you know, as you know, most of the most interesting mods are interesting because they're pushing what's possible in modding a game in some way. So naturally, right. a lot of the most kind of ambitious stuff is going to be the stuff that runs the risk, at least, of getting destroyed in a patch, you know, or, or totally. rendered non-functional in some way. Totally. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a bit of a cursed problem, but it's, you know, it's a good problem to have in a sense, right? To have people who are engaged enough with your game that they're making that kind of stuff. It's just, you need the bandwidth to, to talk to them, right? Which is absolutely non-trivial. Totally. Yep. Totally. Maybe that's a good segue to ask, how big is the team currently working on Whisker Squadron? Um, if you include, you know, like uh, what we, we just we just actually most recent, we had uh, we had Megan Fox on making Skatebird and she talks about working with a cloud of contractors, right? <laughs> I don't know mm-hmm. how much of this is like a core, more traditional studio type team and how much of it is uh, a cloud of contractors, but like, you know, how many hands, pairs of hands are on the game currently? Yeah, yeah. So on a weekly basis, you know, there's three of us who are touching the game you know, on, on, the, on the development team. So it's, you know, it's me f- full time. And then, you know, Sean, who's, uh, he's like the lead designer, creative director. So he's in there every week, you know, doing level design and, you know, design documentation and kind of making all the big decisions, you know, alongside me. Um, and then Chris is a part-time, you know, employee for Flip Fly who's helping out with, uh, with programming and uh, kind of a unity generalist type guy. And then Shell Wong is our, our, um, our composer. So she's doing, you know, all the music and some sound design as well. I said I was done referring to previous episodes, but I am not because all Michelle <laughs> Wong was on a little while ago. So I'll, I'll link to her episode as well. Yeah. Yep. And then we've got, um, uh, an artist named Jin who did a, a bunch of the early character concepts. Um, she's been having some, some, uh, health problems with her, her, her hands and stuff where she hasn't been able to draw. So oh, she, she might not be able that. to do any more, any more art for us, but yeah, that was a, a big bummer cause we really love her art. Um, and then we've got somebody who's going to, who was going to be the writer, but you know, she's been really busy with her own Kickstarter projects and stuff too. So I'm not sure that we're going to be able to, to, uh, make use of her, but you know, that's our, that's our team so far. I feel like I must be forgetting somebody here. Um, that's our team so far, but we, you know, we might be scaling up a little bit just to get some more, some more art help and um, possibly, possibly a couple of other things too. But, but yeah, it's a pretty small team. We're fully, fully remote, fully distributed. Um, we got a pretty chill work style too. So <laughs> that's, that always helps for sure. Well, it's, you know, it's not your, uh, not your first rodeo as it were, right? Like it's uh you know, it's not your first game. It's not your first flight game. So you probably have a sense of what's required and you're not going to, you know, you're, you're, you're less likely anyway for, you know, to, to, to have things suddenly explode in terms of what's necessary or schedule. Like you have a sense of what's needed, even if you don't have all of it at a given time. Right. Yeah. For the most part. I mean, it's always, I don't know. You think you're making something that's 90% known and the 10% unknown and that 10% ends up like being a lot more than you think it would be. That 10% know, so. to somehow equal to the 90%. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, okay, procedural bosses, procedural gener- generated bosses shouldn't be that bad, you know? And then I spend three months just prototyping, <laughs> you know? Um, oh, this is why that isn't really a thing that other people have done. That yeah, much. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And like, for instance, you know, we, you know, we, we, we had this shooting mechanic where it was like, um, felt wrong to just be able to hold down the button and just shoot 
you know, powerful lasers at a constant rate just felt too powerful. So we added this energy mechanic where it's like you, you spend some energy with shots and then you need to like let go of the button and recharge it. Um, and that was, that felt roughly right to us. And then we just kind of kept getting some feedback that like people, people hated that. And it was, you know, frustrating. And I think they're kind of like thinking back to Star Fox, which also didn't have, didn't have that, but it also didn't have constant rate shooting. So, you know, so like, for instance, we spent several weeks this last month, just trying to like address that in a way that's fun and balanced and kind of like scalable. Um, so little things like that, where it's just like, okay, this thing that we thought was finished just isn't actually working and we need to revisit that. So those things can kind of eat into our schedule as well. Um, so it's tough. Cause it's like, you know, I, you know, my, my role in the project or one of my roles in the project is like the producer project planner. So I make a big list of features and I put it in a calendar and, you know, we try to make time estimates on everything. And then two months later we look at it and it's like, okay, we kind of missed that deadline and, you know, we're going to have to bump this back or cut something. And suddenly we're like two months later in our, in our launch date, you know? Um, so it's, it's really hard to avoid that kind of stuff. Um, and it's just, you know, it's a constant battle, but I guess it does get easier over time, (laughs) over time. It's like, okay, I think, you know, I, I can probably predict how long it's going to take to add a leaderboard to the game, for instance. Sure. sure. No, totally, totally. Yeah. Within a few weeks, you know, no fair. You're going to be better at predicting things that are things you've, you've done before versus things that that are, that you've never done before and that have sort of never been done before, at at least in the way you're doing them, like the procedural bosses, that makes perfect sense. But when you say you have a chill way of working, you don't mean everything always goes to plan. You know, that's not really how plans work. Actually. You mean, yeah, I guess what I mean is, you know, we're not crunching and it's not like, we've got to hit this exact deadline and I need you to be in here at nine o'clock it's like you know none of us are on any kind of fixed time schedule you know we kind of know generally when when each other is working but you know we do all of our communication over slack and so you know we communicate sometimes very asynchronously you know send sean a message at the end of the day and he'll respond to it the next day and you know so that's that's a style that's worked pretty well for us so far and i think probably wouldn't be scalable to a bigger team um but you know since we since we uh, since we are distributed and we're all kind of part time for the most part, you know, it's, it's worked pretty well for us. Yeah, definitely, definitely. If I could go back to uh, Chell's contribution for just a second, um, mm-hmm. one thing I saw on her Twitter was uh, <laughs> you've gotten requests for voice acting. I think because people remember Star Fox sixty four, and even Star Fox one had a surprising amount of voice acting for an yeah. SNES game. Yeah. But I, I, the thing that I saw uh, uh, Chell put up was like beep speech chopped up music concrete style vocalizations from actual cats um do you know whether that's in or not and i i my wife insisted that i ask this because when i booted up the build you gave me and it didn't have that she was i won't say heartbroken but she was right. she missed it yeah yeah we've done some that was kind of our plan and we've done some some prototyping of it it's not quite there yet you know so i think it's um we're we're trying to like one, not just come across as like, again, a clone of Star Fox. So it's like, you know, I didn't literally want to do the blah, 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 you know. Sure, um, sure. And also it is cats. So we kind of wanted to get that feel. Our first attempt was just like literally recording cats meowing and just kind of chopping that up. And that's what Shell did. Um, it felt a little bit too much like, okay, I'm looking at the screen and there's cartoon characters that kind of look like, you know, anthropomorphized cats but then what i'm listening to sounds like literal kittens meowing in the background you know so it was a little bit of a dissonance there you know so that's an uncanny valley thing that hadn't occurred to me it's like it's abstract enough when you hear an actual human voice come out of a cartoon cat but to hear an actual cat vocalization come out of a cartoon cat is is different that's ha that it never it's also really hard to catch tone when you know Mm, sure sure you know the 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 text that comes up is kind of like excited or happy and then the cat voice that comes up is sort of like sort of an angry cat sound or something it's like you know it's just i'm I'm sure we'll get there and you know chell's awesome so we're gonna we're gonna make it work but it's gonna be it's gonna take some iteration you know so (laughs) yeah yeah this, by the way, is the is we I, this is some kind of challenge run for an interview about Whisker Squadron because it was a, it was this long end before we actually said the characters in the game are cats. We hadn't actually yeah, mentioned that part. Um, <laughs> totally. Which is that's why it's called Whisker Squadron. Um, mm-hmm. And and they're like you said, the character designs are really really cool. Um, 
I've never actually heard anybody ask you why cats. Is there a particular reason or did the, did the, you know, the name and the aesthetic just kind of come to you? Yeah, this is a, this is a good question. Some, at some point I'm going to have to talk to a therapist about this. I don't know. There's, <laughs> if you look at the the pattern of like games that flip fly has been working on for the last uh, two or three years, like they've all had cats in them. And I think part of it was me, you know, trying to come up with some sort of a theme in our work that you could kind of connect one game to the next so that if people think about what is a flip fly game and are there any common things among them, how will I know if I, if I like the next one? So, mm. you know, before this game, we were working on a game called cats fly helicopters and that's a topic for another, <laughs> another discussion, but it was a game where you're, you know, you're cats in a world of cats and you fly it, you're a helicopter pilot. Um, and then, you know, another game I was prototyping last year was a little fishing game where you're two sisters who are cats and you you catch fish in the backyard and then you kind of like own this little like um, fish market where you sell, you'll sell fish to customers. So, you know, I'm not sure this is all going to totally come to fruition. So that was part of it. It's just like from a business branding point of view, how can I how can I make a theme that's kind of common to a lot of our games without literally making games in the same genre every time? Cause that's boring as hell. Um, <laughs> so that's part of it. And part of it is just, I like cats. I've got a cat, you know, I think they're, I think they're great. So it's also just, um, there's something about games where I think it's like, if you can make themes in your game that are, that are fantasy or just like not grounded in, the totally real world. I think, why wouldn't you, you know? So yeah, yeah sure, sure. Yeah. You know, why not uh, cats know. is the correct yeah. answer to why cats. <laughs> you're flying a helicopter and you're a little person. Why wouldn't you want to be a cat? Instead, you know? <laughs> it just seems obvious to me, I guess. You no, know? Completely, completely. Like I said, I'll, you know, I'll point people to the, uh, to the Megan Fox episode and, you know, obviously why birds on skateboards, because it's awesome. It solves some interesting technical problems, but mostly why not birds? And, you know, she, she too, she didn't talk about this too much in her, in her interview with us, but in other things, you know, she also put, I believe the same cat in a whole bunch of their games as mm. sort of a, a brand continuity exercise. So that's interesting that that was part of the thought. Um, because, I mean, we, we should say, I would love to hear more about the Cats and Helicopters games and uh, game, uh, and indeed anything you were working on that didn't quite come to fruition. But we should mention... Whisker Squadron is, um, uh, you know, a fairly reasonable follow-on or follow-up to Race the Sun, but you, you, it's not as though you went straight from one to the other. Um, you yeah. did put out a really, I think, delightful puzzle game called Evergarden, mm-hmm. which is definitely, you know, animal-focused, but has a very different tone. It's kind of, like, mysterious and wistful and, you know, and it's it's a puzzle game, right, which is very right. different. Right. Like, but but to you, that, like, like, it still contains the things you were trying to foster in your identity, like as a developer and as a, as a studio, is that, is that fair to say? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It kind of embodied our values and it was, um, you know, I think for my work, it was, you know, if we're going to make a thing, I always want to make like the best possible version of that thing. So, you know, Evergarden was like us trying to invent new mechanics and, and kind of like new genres of games. So, you know, that was a game that took us, I think about six years from start to finish. We actually prototyped it. I think my first prototype of that game was made before race the sun. And then we kind of kept coming back to it and eventually look, this is our, this is our next project, you know, and we didn't go full time on it until like a year before it shipped. But, um, that was a challenge because it's kind of like the procedurally generated bosses. Like we were just doing new things that had never been done, done before. So, you know, there were some real design things to work through there. So we just went through dozens of iterations of that core mechanic you know the core mechanic um, being for anybody who hasn't played it which i think i think a lot of people slept on it but i will say if you're the kind of person who buys a lot of indie games you may already have it from a bundle and not know it <laughs> so check mm-hmm. uh because it's a really really good game and basically you know you're you've got a, a a grid of hexagons and you've got these plants and you can come on any given turn you can combine like with like on an adjacent hexagon or you can have mm-hmm. that plant plant a new plant and so there's, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff with space management and dealing with time and how long it'll take stuff to reach maturity or crossbreed or whatever. It's like yeah. really, really cool yeah. and satisfying. 
And then that's layered on top of, you know, like you in that core puzzle game, you earn resources to go solve other more, I wouldn't call them mist like, but more, more sort of like contemplative adventure gamey type puzzles. Yeah. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool. It's, it's a, it's a tone and a blend and a pace that I've never quite seen in a game before. It's, it's really totally. neat. So yeah. Anybody who slept on it, check it out. Yeah. And that was, uh, you know, credit to my brother Forrest. He was, uh, he was like the creative director on that one. You know, he he really just kind of made that whole world and and uh, theme come alive. You know, just combination of the visual aesthetic and just kind of the stark feel of the world and the writing and mm. you know, re- really proud of it. It wasn't wasn't quite as big of a hit, you know, as we would have liked, but but it's uh, definitely one of the games we're most proud of. Would you consider it a sleeper? Is there like because I you know it has like a relatively active Steam community. It looked like, or at least it did at one time. Like, did it find some people who were stoked on it? Because it's real good. It did, yeah. There was like a small group of people who were just super into it. Um, you know, and part of the part of the thing about the game is like there's there's kind of like this uh, really high skill ceiling with it, which was by design. Like we wanted to make a game that you could learn really easily, but that you couldn't just master. Um, so it has this uh, kind of exponential pushback where, you know, you, you know, you're combining these flowers and it's space man- management, like you said, but once you combine like level six flowers, it becomes this other type of object. And I don't want to give away too much, but it's like this monolith type thing. And then you combine those with a totally new mechanic and, and those open up other possibilities. So, you know, you might play the game for three hours before you kind of like unlock this new this new thing. Um, it's got this iceberg vania vibe where you're, you know, it's almost like, yeah. I would almost compare it to Starseed Pilgrim where you're playing yeah. a game that's satisfying, but there's a whole other game behind the game. I think one challenge with the game, you know, in addition to just like the, the marketing question of like, how do you talk about this thing? That's a totally new genre, you know, maybe, maybe new genre is too generous. You know, I think it was, it's not a typical game that you'd play on Steam or on PC. Um, it's not like a match three where if you've played another one, it's that with a different aesthetic. There's other yeah, stuff. Like going it on. has some similarities with, with match three games, but it's not one and it doesn't look like one. So it's like, we kind of hope that that audience would, would be really into this game, but it's not nearly as casual as those games typically are. Um, where something like Bejeweled or, or Candy Crush is they're casual and there's not a skill ceiling, but there's kind of this soft ceiling where it's like, you don't really have to be very good at it to, to play through them. Um, Evergarden is interesting in that it kind of, it pushes back against you, but then you grow your skill and then you kind of like go to this next level and then the game gets more challenging in a way. Um, And I think that was a bit of a design dilemma because if you're the sort of player who really just loves a casual game and doesn't want to engage your brain that much, you kind of opt into it after a while when you get your skill level up. And that can be a little bit uh, stressful, I think. But also when you first start playing the game, you, you might play around and it's kind of casual and you play it for like 10 or 20 minutes. And then 10 hours later, you're so good at the game that a typical round might last an hour or two. And so just the kind of like your time commitment to play the game changes as you play. And that's a interesting practical challenge with game design, I guess, is like doing that. But um making it so that people kind of know what they're getting ahead of time. Um, totally, totally. There's there's something to be said for purity, for something like threes or whatever. But there's also, for me, like the games that I that I kind of find myself loving the most or, or, or finding, you know, like I, the reaction I love to have is, oh, oh, <laughs> like that yeah. moment to me, like if you could, if, you know, it bottles that in a way that like anytime a game can do that, it's like, oh man, that's, I, I'm on board. Right, right, yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's interesting. So that game didn't do quite as well as you wanted, which, you know, typical enough indie story, unfortunately. And correct me if I'm wrong, Forrest is not working on Whisker Squadron. He kind of went off to do his own thing. After That's right. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. He left in 2019, you know, and, and that's a, like I said, a story for a whole nother podcast, but you know, Cats Fly Helicopters just turned out to be way too ambitious of a game for, <laughs> for our little studio. You know, it was, um, it was physics based and it was like kind of sophisticated flight. And it was also lots of characters and, you know, generated characters and it was an open world game. And it was, um, we were trying to do a lot with it and we, uh, we just spent a lot of time and money trying to make it work. And then, you know, 
it wasn't the type of game Forrest wanted to be making. And, and he was kind of like looking at his life situation and realizing like he had his own ambitious ideas that he wants to, to be able to do. And so I totally respected that. Um, so when he left, you know, I just realized like this game is clearly way too big for our team. So I'm going to just put it on the shelf and work on something else for a while. Um, so yeah, he's doing his own thing and, you know, Whisker Squadron is kind of like our, uh, our reset, I guess, um, to, to something more manageable, but I'm definitely planning on getting back to the helicopter game at some point. It'll probably be in a, in a slightly different format, you know, something that's a little bit more manageable. Um, but yeah, yep. We also launched, um, so in between, you know, in between all that, we, uh, we did a console version of a game called Absolute Drift. Um, so we, we collaborated with uh, Fun Selector on that. So he had launched that game on Steam initially, and it did really well. And then we kind of came in and spent about six months, like, helping improve the game and added some new features and, you know, helped, him, helped make it more refined and kind of um, replayable. And then we, we did a, uh, a console port for uh, PS4 and Xbox One with that. And so that was, that was really fun, and that was pretty successful for us as well. And then the other game we launched is called 12 Smith, which, again, was a, a real sleeper that was kind of like loosely based on Evergarden's mechanics, um, but as a very simple 2D, uh, 2D game. And that was a collaboration with our friend Phil. Um, so that's still available on on mobile as well. Yeah, I think Absolute Drift is a really good time. Um, 12, 12 Smith, I, I will admit, uh, missed me. It's not currently on the FlipFly website. Uh, so I will I will for sure link people to that. Yeah, if you go to uh, 12smith.com, actually, you can play it right in, a, right in a web browser too, so. That's cool. If you wouldn't mind talking about it briefly, it looks to be like <laughs> I was mentioning threes. Like it, it's aesthetically, it looks more like threes than Evergarden does by a fair by a fair margin. Was that kind of the idea to like come up with something a little bit more pure or simple or or with less layers yeah. on it? Yeah, you know, yeah. we kind of looked at Evergarden and how it was doing and it's like, okay, how do we actually make something that looks super accessible to a mobile audience, basically. Totally, um, totally. And so, yeah, the basic mechanic with with uh, 12 Smith is, you know, it's more abstract. So there's just numbers on a hexagon grid. Mm -hmm. You still drag out from a number and then it kind of like creates a, creates another one, sort of like Evergarden, you know, you kind of like drag out from a flower and, you know, a seed creates a, another one. So you drag out from a four and it'll become a, a random smaller number and then you can kind of combine like numbers so there's this element of randomness and combination and then you run into space and so your goal is to create kind of combine these numbers and create a 12 on the board and so when you create a 12 then you win and there's a a bit of challenge there i think uh some people have been really really into that game as well um so it's been it's been okay, but it, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a huge hit either. But definitely yeah, yeah. something we're proud of. Was I mean uh, maybe maybe as we're winding down here, you know, uh, Whisker Squadron certainly has the, <laughs> the other value of cats that we haven't talked about is their pure mimetic value, right? Like anything anything containing cats travels at, at, at you know times two speed on the internet, maybe more than that. Right. Um, is the, is this sort of like was Race the Sun more a success on the order you were looking for? And is this like you know in no way cynical, right? It's obviously something you're super into, but is this an attempt to like up the ante on that? Is that part of the thinking behind you know revisiting the flight mechanics and all that, and then adding a bunch on top of it? You know, to be honest, I think the bigger thing is just that I you know Star Fox was a huge inspiration. Mm. <clears throat> you know, Race the Sun you know obviously had drew some inspiration from that in terms of just like a minimalist, low poly world and you know, totally. flying in one direction. Um, ever since we made Race of Sun, I always wanted to make like something with more shooting and action in it. Mm -hmm. um, and so this is sort of like what motivated me to do it was just that it was, it was a game I wanted to make. Um, and so when, you know, you, you find that combination of like, it's a game that's fun to make and it uses, you know, from a business point of view, you're kind of like tapping into something that, you know, has an audience you know, whether it's from another game or your own game and also using tool sets and design principles that we learned from and developed from a previous game. Like totally. that's kind of a perfect storm of like, this is a good project for you. Oh you yeah. <laughs> it, it, it fits into a lane for which there's a demand. It's something you're excited about. And you have like the bait, like some of the difficult problems of making it are already solved because you've solved them. Like that's, that's yeah. a sweet spot right there. Totally. 
That's awesome. Well, it definitely seems like a project that that you know that that has a ton of passion behind it. You know, a lot a lot of love goes into it, even in the build that I've seen. I will be keeping an eye on it. I'll let people know where they can what like wishlist it at the moment. Yeah, you can wishlist it on Steam. Um, definitely do that. You can follow us up fly on Twitter if you'd like. Um, that's about all we got for now. <laughs> That'll do. No, and I'll link to I'll link to the back catalog as well because because uh, yeah, Race the Sun. Uh, Absolute Drift, Evergarden, uh, all, I, I can all say, I can say that all those are extremely good. 12 Smith, I will probably play as soon as we're done talking, because I like cool. all your games a whole lot. <laughs> um, thank you one more time for doing this, um, and, uh, and yeah, oh, I guess the one more question I'd be remiss if I didn't ask, even knowing that uh, that's, there may not be an answer, is do you know when Whisper Squadron is going to be out? Sometime next year, you know, we... Um... Our best estimate is around May to June next year right now. Might slip a little bit past that, but that's what we're shooting for. Cool. All right. Well, one to keep an eye on. Fair enough. Um, I, you know, I, I know I've said thank you, but I tend to say thank you a lot because I sure appreciate, <laughs> sure appreciate the time. I hope you had as uh, good a time as I did here. Yeah. Happy to talk. Uh, cool. Have a really good one. Uh, thanks one more time. Cool. You have a good day. You too. Bye. Bye. And that's the show. You can wishlist Whisker Squadron on Steam. You can find most of the rest of the FlipFly catalog at flipfly.com. That is F-L-I-P-P-F-L-Y.com. The notable exception there is 12smith, which you can find on its own website, 12smith.com. That one is spelled pretty much the way it sounds. The Everybody's Talking at Once podcast is hosted and produced by me, Drew Messenger Michaels, and if you're wondering who those other cats in those other ships are, that would be Francis Michelle Cannon and Lucio Valentino. Our logo is by Aaron Perry Zucker using icons from the Noun Project. The current version of our theme is by me. You can find other music I make at carpedemon.band. You can find this show everywhere podcasts are a thing, as well as at etaopod.com. If you'd like to support the show and can do so without financial hardship, then hey, we'd love that. You can do so by buying something on our Nexus page at nexus.gg etao, or by patronizing us at patreon.com etao. Thanks tremendously to our current patrons, with a special thanks to Carlos de los Santos and Darth Raptura, and an even specialer thanks to the mysterious Ian Kay and Lucas Cosin. Hope to see you in two weeks. Until then, may your life be filled with the precise number of cats you wish it to be. See you next time, everybody.